Welcome to Covenant Conversations, episode number 10. Today, Peter and I have the pleasure of speaking to Lalit Wapcholo in New York about EBITDA advacs, deterioration in covenants, information asymmetries, and the structural changes required in the leveraged finance markets. Lale is a senior fund manager and the head of credit for J.O. Hamro Capital Management. She has 20 years of experience investing across the credit markets during her career at J.O. Hamro and previously at Goldman Sachs. Hi, Lale. How are you doing? Thank you so much for joining our podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. This is very exciting. Great. So we're going to talk about a bunch of interesting things, starting with the EBITDA adjustments, which is a hot topic in Europe at the moment. Um, recently, we saw Schenk Process's first quarter earnings include EBITDA adjusted for the impact of COVID-19, and that adjustment increased the EBITDA by 41.9%. So what's your view on EBITDA adjustments being included in debt documents and do you think it's right to include adjustments for the impact of COVID-19? Well, I think broadly speaking, um, I think all these adjusted EBITDA numbers are just absolute nonsense. Um, they create a fictitious number. I mean, EBITDA itself is not a uh, gap. It's an accounting principle number. So on top of it, we've now gone to entirely a fictitious land. Um, and as it relates to adding back yeah, you know, extraordinary losses or event-related issues because of the pandemic, you know, I think it, it, it really creates a challenge because one is effectively you're lending forward on a backward-looking numbers. Um, and the backward-looking numbers were arguably already somewhat inflated because of all the baskets and the adjustments that are allowed. So, you know, I think it, it creates a lot of challenges uh, for the investor community. When you mean it creates challenges for the investor community, could you tell us more about that? Because it tells you nothing about, I mean, so EBITDA itself tells you absolutely nothing about a firm's profitability. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I um, see the younger analysts or even the sell-side reports that estimate a free cash flow um, of a company, they start with adjusted EBITDA. Well, that doesn't really work. And actually, if you took those numbers and you compared it to a standard free cash flow definition, which is cash flow uh, from ops minus capex, in most cases, you will see a large delta. It's because you're starting with the adjusted EBITDA number that has all sorts of adjustments in it that are just, you know, I, I deem them to be basically fictitious. Um, And I think it gives investors a false sense of comfort about a health of a company. And an EBITDA, as you guys are expert at this, it determines your borrowing capacity. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So now you're borrowing off of an inflated number and then your debt capacity, you know, couple that with the loosey-goosey documentation we've seen, it, it, it creates this, you know, I think it's a huge hurdle for investors. It really is. It's a hurdle to just understand, get, get their feet on the ground to understand what exactly is going on with the company and where those numbers are coming from. That's exactly right. And you really won't worry about that until you see a fundamental deterioration. But as we stand here today, I think it's fairly easy, um, you know, normal to say we've entered a credit cycle and these things will matter increasingly more. Like in a bull market, you could ignore the covenants. You can just say, ah, it is what it is, but 
the faults are low and these companies are high quality. I'll just be fine. You can, you can create a whole host of excuses. When the credit cycle starts, you go back to the drawing board. And I think that's where people are really going to get surprised. Right. It's really interesting you mentioned that because from the few handful of bonds that we've seen on the European side, and Peter can fill us in on what he's seen on the US side, uh, we haven't really seen any tightening of covenants, including EBITDA or CNI definitions. In fact, I think Peter saw in a bond launch recently, they actually had a specific add back for COVID-19 losses. Well, I think there are a couple of things. You know, I think, unfortunately, that's sort of the, the challenge of the industry that we're in. And what I mean by that is twofold. One is there are multiple deals on a day. And, you know, for and unless you have an extensive legal department, it is going to be nearly impossible for an analyst to look at three or four deals per day and read a prospectus from cover to cover. It's just not feasible. So you just look at what you would think of as big catch-alls, right? What's your restricted payments capacity? What's your leverage? Um, or as most people say, is there these uh, flexible, restricted to unrestricted subsidiary transfer restrictions and all that stuff? So you look for the mega mega issues, and then you just work from there and you just do your credit work. The, the other piece is if you are a benchmark portfolio manager, and this is where the challenge of a life of a portfolio manager comes in, you have to beat your benchmark. You have to perform against that benchmark because otherwise you have absolutely no business. You will be getting eaten alive by the passive industry. And as a result, you... You know, you, you have to play in these deals. They come into your benchmark. There's, there's not much you can do, especially if it's a big deal, right? The easiest deals you can, you can ignore are the ones if oil is at, I'm making this up, at $20 a barrel and the energy sector is distressed. You can just say, you know what? I don't want any energy. But anything that's just not as that drastic, you have to take a look at it. And if it's going to be a big weight in your benchmark, you're going to have to play in it. You know, I, I've been thinking, so, I mean, you know, we, as Sean said, we, we have seen, you know, one ad back kind of for losses, uh, you know, losses related to coronavirus. I mean, I actually, I, you know, in, in the, in the context of, of these super aggressive debt documents, you know, I, I find these ad backs for coronavirus um, not to be as terrible as, you know, you first would, as, as your instinct would say. I mean, a lot of these amendments we're seeing are kind of, changing 2020 and 2021 EBITDA, you know, back to 2019. So they're just essentially rolling back, you know, all the financials and the EBITDA, just, you know, uh, acknowledging it's kind of like a one-off uh, one off incident. I mean, but you take uh, a deal like, you know, WeWork, which I think is, you know, one of the m more infamous uh, EBITDA ad back companies where they went from, I think it was like a negative $900 million EBITDA to a positive $250 million, you know, adjusted community EBITDA. So, I mean, I, I think I, I agree. I agree with you. You know, you, you can't really judge a company based on EBITDA, but um, when everybody's doing it, you know, you just kind of have to, I, I guess you just have to pick and choose, you know, your, your battles. Well, if you're you invested in the asset class, that is true. You have to pick and choose, choose your battles. That's, that's absolutely right. But let me put it this way. When I first started in high yield back in 1999, when I entered this industry, Covenants meant something because it was a way for the lender to intervene and to have a stake in the in the process. In some cases, you know, you, you, you took your medicine early, right? You just restructured the company. 
you lowered that loss, um, that burden on the company, and then you, you looked forward. With the deterioration we've seen, I would argue that the structure of the leveraged finance markets have drastically changed. And it has gone to a point where it's going to create an issue between the haves and the have-nots. And what I mean by that is institutions that have immense amount of knowledge and resources that can just basically throw money at this. And then the other folks, because remember, retail buys it, right? Individual people buy it. If for them, it has just become, in my opinion, only it's only good during bull times, in the bull market times. As soon as you have some fundamental deterioration, even for an institutional manager that does not have the scale, it just means I'm going to sell it first and then I'll ask questions. Because I know the covenants are so loose, I have absolutely no idea how I'm going to get primed and what that really means for me. I can't, I can't do the work. I don't have the resources to do the work. I think it's great for the lawyers in the distress business, <laughs> but they just, they just, they just don't, you know, they're not the only ones in this business. I mean, high yield market is $1.2 trillion market in the U.S. But so if, if you, so, you know, if you're kind of looking out and, you know, you could pick how debt documentation looks, you know, going forward, what would you say that it's a, it's a covenant issue or it's an EBITDA issue? I, I know they're kind of related, but you know, if you had to, if you got to pick either very restrictive covenants or a true representation of the company's financials, you know, in respect of, you know, the EBITDA figure or whatever figure you're going to use for like leverage tests and basket capacities, which do you think kind of has, is more ripe to be taken advantage of to give these companies a lot more flexibility? So you can't have it all. So I think you have to be practical around it. I think what would help for the industry is to have some sort of a standardized definitions on the covenants, right? When does a non-recurring charge become recurring? Because you keep seeing non-recurring charges for like three years. And if it's recurring for over 12 months, I would argue it's, it, it's no longer non-recurring. Um, so I think there needs to be some standardization on the definitions, which can ease some of this pain. I mean, EBITDA is what it is. The industry has basically, because the leverage companies don't generate much free cash flow, you, know, you have to go to a, to a term like EBITDA for the future <laughs> to, to, to you know, look forward for your future profitability. So I don't think you can do much there. But if you can standardize the definitions, I think that would help. And they, the covenants, I think the entire covenant package matters. I mean, they have all gotten under attack now. Um, so it's really hard to hang your hat on anything. That's really interesting. I mean, one of the things that we do see pushback on in the primary market is a cap on certain element of the adjustments, typically being there's a cap on the amount of pro forma synergies or cost reductions that you can add back. So I perhaps perhaps tightening the EBITDA definition in addition to defining some of these uh, nebulous terms like extraordinary losses and non-recurring charges, that that might be also something worth considering. I think that's true. And I think what would also help is to strike the catch-all phrase of this, you know, up to 20% or 25% of EBITDA at back. I mean, that's kind of... So, <laughs> There's always a catch-all like basket. I think you know some people call it the junk drawer. I mean, you always have it, even if you create like a mutual fund, you always have like a junk drawer of like all the things that you would like to have if you can. Mm -hmm. um, 
so I think one of the things that can, you know, you can add back, you know, define what the specific add back should be, but get rid of that other category. The, the, the catch-all phrase of like, you can add up to whatever you like up to 20% because it makes a big difference or alternatively increase your covenant. So they, they're tied, right? So either increase your leverage covenants or the allowable leverage by 20% and just tighten on the EBITDA. Like, but having both of them loose just seems like double dipping to me. And I think this is why when, you know, eventually we go through the credit cycle and the restructuring happens, I think people are going to get surprised. People are going to get surprised because they think, you know, a company's debt capacity maybe is a billion and they're going to find out it's maybe 2x that mm. amount. And that makes a whole lot of difference as you go through the restructuring. Yeah. I mean, I think there's one one aspect, which is, of course, the, you know, the very loose covenants and the the pages and pages and pages of definitions or addbacks that EBITDA and I can have. But the other thing is just getting the information to be able to actually accurately calculate capacities. We do that. We calculate capacities for our clients on what is a priming debt capacity, what is a capacity to transfer uh, assets to an unrestricted subsidiary and raise debt there. But, you know, we are all we we put together a number based on information which is not complete because only the issuer has that complete information. That's that's true. I mean, the inf- I mean, that's the that's the third leg of the, the. I think when I think of the high yield structural changes in the market, I mean that's been the 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 other leg of it, which has been this information transparency, which was always pretty bad in the leveraged loan market because the private market. So you always have to go through the these password protected sites to get access mm-hmm. to it. But I think on the high yield side and you'll be more familiar with it because I think it's a lot more prevalent in Europe is this notion of, you know, issuers getting on the password protected sites. And I think it's something like a third of the high yield universe. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not a small number um, where, you know, you effectively have to sign an NDA to get access to it. And it's, and it's a way of screening the, the, the lender, right? The, the management team has to decide whether, they want to lend to you. Like, what if you work for a fund that creates value for its investors by playing long short? Maybe you have a reputation in that area. Maybe they don't want you as, as a lender. So in that case, they can actually deny you the information. Um, on the flip side, if you own those bonds and their credit deteriorates and you want to exit, now you're faced with the reality that there's only a handful of buyers. And people have to do scramble and do work to be able to bid for your bonds. Um, on the loan side, you know, there's these whitelists, blacklists, which is a whole another issue where, you know, it really limits your, your buyer waste. And, and I think all these things, you know, I'll always give people the benefit of the doubt. I think they always are written with good intentions. But when, when times get challenges, challenging, it's always hard to tell whether the good intention at the end of the day that was meant a couple of years ago is going to be available to you at that moment in time. Or what you might have is very nice and permissive language, <laughs> which, <laughs> which uh, you know, when you interpret a document, the first thing you look at is, is the language. Yes. And I think I've, I, I have vivid memories of several years ago. You know, I don't want to. I, I won't mention the company, but like as, as we talked previously, the comma, the where the where the dot where the comma was, mattered hugely. Oh yes, <laughs> in terms of the in terms of the language. I mean, but but think about it. I mean, for a lawyer, 
you know, this must be perhaps what you guys thrive on. Lawyer like, oh heaven, such a challenge. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. For, for an, you know, I'm married to a lawyer, so like she gets a lot of enjoyment out of all these commas <laughs> and periods. But for an investor, I mean, it's it's a nightmare. Like, how am I supposed to decide what that really means? So, again, it goes back to the the I think the investor universe really being split as the credit cycle deepens between the haves and the have-nots, and you know it's going to play into the hands of a few folks who have the resources and who thrive in this and anybody else who does traditional high yield can be, can find themselves be very, very challenged. That's um... depressing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, well, you know, it's time for change. So those are, you know, significant changes that people also need to think about at the moment their attention is focused on what's happening with issuers and borrowers but you're highlighting another aspect of the market which is also what is happening to investors or what could happen to them but you you see it i mean even before we went on to this you know pandemic issue you've seen bankruptcy cases where you know perhaps you know you're, you're parry with an asset class but you get left out of the group because you weren't first in, you're not part of the, the mm. favorite group, you're not part of the club. I mean, there have been multiple cases of this. So, you know, the valuation fights in and out of, in and around the courts, you know, there are numerous cases on that as well. So it's, it's never been, you know, maybe I'm naive, but I, I don't ever remember seeing that previously. I, I will say, I, I mean, just, just quickly, I mean, you know, after like the J. Crew transfer, after the PetSmart transfer, uh, you know, you saw pushback for, let's say, like one or two weeks even, but then it, everyone just went back to normal. And, you know, the next time it happens, lenders or note holders will be up in arms about it. You know, they'll tighten the documents again and then they'll loosen them right back up again. Uh, it just it seems and it's frustrating. It just seems like nobody ever learned. Their, they learned the lesson the day that a transaction happens. That's just what happens in the markets. I mean, I think high yield market is notorious for it. Nobody ever remembers it. What have you done for me lately? I think is the most common and people see these, you know, fat coupons and they go, whoa, like, you know, the whole market yields five and you're going to pay me 12. Sounds great. And nobody asks, why are you paying me 12? There's nothing free (laughs) in the markets. I mean, and I think, and I think one of my challenges have been people complain a lot about covenants. The reality is don't buy it, right? Nobody is jamming down a paper down your throat. You just say, you know what? We're not buying it. It's not that hard to do. But because, you know, everybody competes for paper, right? There's when you have massive inflows and industry has grown so dramatically, you know, one one person's loss is your gain. So that's that's the other part. It all accrues as a benefit to, to the issuer. Well, let's uh, see if the current environment that we are in will redress that issue to any extent and restore a slightly better balance between the issuer and the lenders. I think eventually when we go through the credit cycle and we go into the depths of the, I think, the restructuring, et cetera, and then, you know, if the environment at that point is still bad, and I, I think that will give hope that things may get rewritten a little better. I don't think it's ever going to go back to what it used to be, but maybe a, a little a little bit better. Well, we shall, as nerdy lawyers, look forward to that time. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, thank you so much, Lale, for 
taking your time to be with us on the podcast today. My pleasure. 